ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask you to show us what you would want us to see from this and guide us through your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, chapter eight, uh, 7 and 8 have all been about the greater tabernacle, the greater priesthood, the greater covenant, the, the greater or better way. And we're continuing that theme in chapter 9 when it says, Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of, of divine service and, of, and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tent of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the golden and the Ark of the Covenant lay overlaid around about with gold, wherein was the gold pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant and over it the cherubim of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly now when these things were thus ordained the priest went in always to the first tabernacle accomplishing the service of God but into the second went the high priest alone once every year not without blood which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people let's stop there because I want to talk about the first five verses primarily so here is Paul speaking to the Hebrew people about the tabernacle all right. So he's moved from the priesthood to the offering system, you know, all the way through. And now he's talking about the tabernacle. And we touched on the tabernacle in the previous chapter where he said it was a copy of the heavenly uh, temple. So here he's now going on. He says, then, so this is continuation of the first chapter of the previous chapter. Remember when you're reading the Bible, the chapters and verses are put in by man. <laughs> Somewhere in the Middle Ages they put in, and it's here for us to be able to find things real easy. That way when I come into Bible study, I'm saying, okay, we're going to go to the middle of Hebrews and start out at this point. I can just say we're going to chapter 9, verse, <laughs> verse 1. So when you're reading it, if this uh, argument or the thought hasn't ended, keep reading to the end of the, end of the, end of the thought. Because uh, too many times they put a chapter break right in the middle of a thought. And it kind of, you know, we stop reading at one chapter and then we come back to it the next day or later on that afternoon and we go, this doesn't make any sense. And then you have to go back and pull the context, context out, but not everybody does that. So just remember when you're reading it, just because there's a verse in there or just because there's a chapter, don't take that as the absolute place where it belongs. It's not, the chapters and verse are not God spoken and God ordained. They were put in by man, and for the most part they did a good job, but this is one of those places where they probably should not have put a chapter break at this, at this spot, because they broke up they broke up a thought. Uh, so he's, we go into the previous verse, it says, and then he said, a new covenant he hath made the first old, now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away then all right verily or truly the first covenant which had ordinances of service and a worldly sanctuary so here he's making the point the first covenant was all about laws and rules and it was designed to to have people obey all right but we could not obey. So its real design was to show people that they could not obey. So the first covenant, the laws were designed to tell people 
You cannot keep what God desires. And there was all kinds of places for mercy and grace to follow through on it. And the Jews somehow got to the place where they believed that the law would get them, get them into heaven. But they also had this idea that, that God had this system of weights and balances. As long as you did more good than bad, you're going to be okay. And that was never what he said in the law. Matter of fact, all through the law, he said just what the New Testament says, if you violate any of the laws, you're guilty. So, and you have to offer a sacrifice or the shadow of Jesus' sacrifice to show that you are asking for your sins to be covered. So all of this was coming in, and Paul, the writer, saying you had divine services and ordinances and a worldly sanctuary. Right? You saw things. And the hard thing about human beings is we like to see things rather than walk by faith. And all through this book, we're going to be told, walk by faith. Learn to walk according to what God says, not by what you see. And this is what he's talking to the Jews about. He says, you saw a temple. You saw rules. He goes, for there was a temple made. All right? So there was one that was made, equipped. And in it was the candlestick, the table, the showbread, and that was called the sanctuary or the holy place, as we oftentimes call it. So in the first, if you remember the tabernacle, which most of you weren't here when we did the study in Pentateuch, but we had the tabernacle, which had a wall around the outside, which, was, which had um, bases of brass, which means judgment, holding up the poles, which held up the, the skins all the way around the, the tabernacle. And on the top of each of those poles was a silver cap, and silver represents redemption. So God looks down on it, sees redemption, and judgment is between the ground and, the, and it. And then inside this walled area, you had the tables to offer your sacrifices. So the people would come in, they would kill their animal, it would be bled out, and the Levites would skin it and take the skin off. The Levites got to keep the skin, the, the skins and the furs. And that was part of their, their income. They would take out, depending on what offering it was, they would cut up the animal appropriately for the offering that was being made. And then it would go to the priest to be put onto the, to the brazen altar. All right, that was the part that everybody worked on at least once a week, every day, you know, that was where you went to offer your sacrifices and all of that. The priests every day would go into the holy place. In the holy place was the things listed here, the candlestick or the menorah, and they would have to be filled with oil every day to make sure that it stayed lit all the time. So they would fill it in the morning and in the evening, and it would burn all day long. You had the altar of the showbread where they put the bread on there, 12 loaves of bread, one for each tribe. They'd put the frankincense. And if you want to get all the symbolism, all of this stuff, go back to the, the series from, from uh, Exodus and Leviticus. And they would offer the showbread on there. And so he's going through all of this, and he's not explaining it all. Why? Because he's talking to Jewish people. They knew these things. And he says, the priest went in every day to take care of these things. All right? 
So they, one priest would go in the morning, another one would go in the evening, and, and uh, the showbread was changed every, every two weeks, I think it was, and every day they would refill the oil, and they would pray and do everything else as they monitored the holy place. The, the holy place then had a thick veil after it, and it blocked off the holy of holies. All right, and in the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant. All right, and this was the big, big centerpiece of it, the Ark of the Covenant, which was a box of a wooden box overlaid with gold, and on top of the Ark of the Covenant sat the mercy seat of God, and above that, the had cherubs on both sides of it with their wings overstretched it so that they overshadowed the mercy seat. And so this is what Paul is talking about as he's bringing this in. And he reminds everybody that what's in the Ark of the Covenant is the, a pot of a gold pot of manna from, from when they, manna was being fed. They picked, God told them to take a pot of manna and put it, put it in the Ark of the Covenant. The Ten Commandments that God wrote was in, in the Ten Commandments. And the rod that budded, Aaron's rod that budded. Now, does everybody remember the story of the rod that buds? All right. The people had a contention, like they were going, okay, Moses, who made you and Aaron rulers over us? And Moses said, well, God did, and they didn't like that, so God told them, okay, have every elder of every tribe bring their rod in, we'll put it in the tabernacle, and the rod that buds will be the one that I have chosen. And so overnight... Aaron's dead rod fully, not only budded, branched out, <laughs> blossomed, and produced uh, almonds or olives, and fruit uh, overnight. That was Aaron's rod? Aaron's rod. And that was the proof that God had chosen Aaron and Moses to be the leaders of the tribe. And so his rod was then placed into the Ark of the Covenant. All right. Was it, was it a yes. So when they brought these, these were dead. These were dead staffs. I mean, they they were thinned out, you know, trimmed out, you know, uh, sanded down so that we wouldn't get them. This was their staff that they wanted, you know, used for walking. Also showed authority, you know, authority. So they put these dead, dead uh, staffs in there. And Aaron's just came to life, you know, came to life and blew, you know, took months worth of time and just exploded. Uh, so those were the three things that were placed into the Ark of the Covenant. And these were placed under the mercy seat. So you had the law, which represented the rules. You had the authority of God through the bud that, that uh, the rod that budded. And you had the care of God feeding his people that God placed under the mercy seat for, for all time. So, and this is, this is kind of an interesting thing. Uh, so he tells them all these things were in there. And then he said the cherub were there that overshadow the ark. All right, so there's a cherubim on both sides, which are, in, which are one of the three types of angels with their wings over the top of it that brought that overshadowed it. Very much picture of Isaiah 6 where the seraphim are flying around the throne singing holy, holy, or saying holy, holy, holy 
all day long uh, and flying around the throne. In this case, he's saying it's a cherubim that are over the mercy seat. And then very interesting, he goes in verse 5, of the which we, we cannot now speak particularly. <laughs> all right, this is kind of an interesting statement. He's bringing up the whole design of the tabernacle or the, the worship part of the tabernacle. And then he says, we're not going to talk about it. <laughs> uh, he's reminding the Jewish people. And there's two schools of thought about this, and I can see both sides. One of them says that these, he was just reminding them, but they're not part of what he's going to talk about. So he says, we're not even going to worry about this. The other part that says that there's so much to say about this that I'm not going to digress into this discussion. Because when we start talking about the tabernacle and the symbolism and the tabernacle and the, the colors and the, pro, and the items that are being used on it, when we were doing this in, in, the, in the Pentateuch, we spent weeks and weeks talking about the tabernacle and what each of the coverings of the tabernacle meant and, and how they saw, because the outside one, the outside covering of the tabernacle is black. The second one is red. Third one was white, and then you went into gold, uh, blue, blue and white, and then you went into gold, you know, which shows our sin, the sacrifice, the purity, the kingship, and the royalty of it. And that was what they saw as they walked in through these door after door of these skins. That, you know, there's pictures all over the tabernacle that are so beautiful, and this is why he says, I don't even have time to go into all the symbolism of the tabernacle. And so he says, I'm just telling you about it. You all know it. Here I go. You might even, he might have even been saying, you know, you know most of what I'm going to tell you anyway, so I don't have to go into it. And I don't know how much they knew. Because earlier he said, you ought to be teachers. Remember in chapter 6, he said, you, you guys should be teachers by now, and, and we're having to go back to the basics. And if you remember that list of what he considered basic... <laughs> Most Christians don't know what he considered basic as he's telling them these are, these are the basic doctrines. And so he's challenging them. Do you know? Do you understand? Go out and find out the truth. And this is good for us as Christians. If there's something we don't understand, we need to seek the truth. That could be as simple as going to the Holy Spirit and asking for guidance, getting into some, some uh, word studies, find a teacher or, or, or whatever and say, can you help me answer this? And work your way through it. Learn what it means. Learn these truths as you go forward on these things because it is important for us to show ourselves worthy. Because there's going to come a time when each one of us is going to be called upon to share with somebody else. And we need to know what it is we believe and why. One of the things I've always hated when I grew up was how many people would say, well, you just take it by faith. It's in the Bible. Just believe it. Well, I was an analytical type of person. That was not the answer I wanted to hear. I wanted to know why do we believe? You know, there are things you just have to take by faith. I understand that. But there's a lot of things that are answered in the scriptures if we just take the time to study more is answered in the, in, the, in the Bible than just say, ah, just believe it. Because those who say just believe it also don't know their Bible well enough to tell you where it is in the Bible that you're supposed to believe. 
They just say, believe it. Uh, somebody told me it's in the Bible, so I'm just going to tell you the same thing. It's in the Bible. We've got to be careful with that kind of a statement. You know, we need to be able to go back and say, this is where it's at. All right? May not fully understand it, but at least I know this is where it's at in the Bible to be able to, un- to, be able to understand. Because God tells us in Isaiah, come now, let us reason together. This is what I love about Christianity. It's not a just believe because it is God is a God of reason. He has truth on his side. So he's not worried about people asking why. And I've said this so many times. If you can't ask why in the church about spiritual things, where else are you going to ask it? You know, I'm going to go, I have a question, is there, is there God? And the church won't answer it, so I'm going to go talk to an atheist. And of course, the atheist is going to tell you no, and they're going to give you all the reasons why they don't believe there's a God. They're all stupid reasons, but they're going to tell you why they don't believe there's a God. Or you're going to go to some other religion, and they're going to tell you about their God. Uh, you know, we're the, we're the, we follow Thor, the, the god of war, or Mars, the god of war. We follow Athena, the, god of, the goddess of love. You know, let's tell you all about those gods. We need to be able to, in the church, say... Here is why. This is what we believe, and this is why I go through the scriptures. And then let people make their decisions. I will never tell somebody that, no, nope, that question is too far-fetched for the, for the church. Because I believe the Bible touches on every subject in some way or form. It, talk, it talks about every subject there is to cover. You may have to dig for some of our modern thoughts, but you know that... In Ecclesiastes, Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun, and amazingly, there is nothing new under the sun. We get some new technologies, we think, and then we find out that they were already talked about. Now, they were already talked in the Bible long, long ago, before, and people wouldn't, didn't catch them half the time. So we just be able to say, let's look at this. And Paul here is saying, <laughs> i got a lot more I could be saying on this, but you know, I don't want to write, I don't want to write an entire book just on on the temple, you know, on the tabernacle. We're going to go beyond the tabernacle. We're going to apply it to other places. So, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing that he says. All right, verse 6 says, And when, now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. The Holy Spirit thus signified that the way into holiness was for all was not yet made manifest. While as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of the Reformation. So here he's saying that the first covenant was weak. Right? He was saying that it did not accomplish the cleaning of the conscience. And if you've ever tried to walk in rules and laws, what do rules and laws teach you? That you're not perfect. You know, and this is the amazing thing. It doesn't matter whether they're God's laws or human laws or the gang's laws or the prison's laws or whatever, whatever group you're in. 
The rules of those groups, people do not keep, all the rules do is show you that you cannot keep rules. And this is what he's saying here. He says, these things, when they were thus ordained, the priest went in always into the first to do the ministry, to keep the light burning, to, to keep the, in, the altar of incense going, to keep the, to keep the uh, showbread uh, up, you know, current. Every day they would go in and do the service. They would keep the oil in the altar of incense. They would keep the oil in the lamps. And they went in morning and evening every day to take care of this. This is what Zechariah was doing when he met the angel saying that he was going to give birth to John. He, went in, he was in service in the holy place, not the holy of holies. If he'd have seen an angel in the holy of holies, he probably would have had a heart attack. <laughs> Because right? that was the greatest fear that any priest, high priest ever happened is that they were going to see God in the Holy of Holies and they weren't going to have been fully, you know, fully covered and they weren't going to come out alive. You know, they all wanted to go into the Holy of Holies as the greatest thrill of service, but at the same time it was a terrifying idea to go in before God and offer, offer the sacrifice before God. So it was... You know, Zachariah saw him in the, an angel in the holy, holy place, which was a big deal, you know, because only priests are supposed to be there, but it wasn't the same thing as seeing him in the holy of holies. And so he's saying here that they went in every day to just accomplish or execute the service that they were supposed to do. Take care of the lamp, take care of the uh, altar of incense, take care of the showbread, and minister before before God in those simple simple areas the menorah signified light of God upon the world the altar of incense it signifies prayers of this prayers of the people ascending to God and when God says I smelled the smoke there's two smokes that he would smell the altar of incense for their prayers and the burning animals on the outside and it, he called it a pleasing aroma I have no idea how the burning of flesh was a pleasing aroma but <laughs> yeah, well, at least they didn't burn the hides, you know, the, the, the hair and everything would have been worse. Uh, but the, God says the obedience of the people to do so was a pleasing aroma. And I'm sure it was the obedience, not the actual burning of the, of the meat that he said, this is, you know, they're obeying. They're doing what I've asked them to do. And he's brought all of this in. And then he goes, and the priest, and this into the second went the high priest once every year. And this would have been accomplished on the 10th day of the seventh month, which is the day of atonement. So every year at the day of atonement, the high priest would gather the people together. All of the people of Israel were to come to the tabernacle and later to the temple. They were to pick out two perfect goats for this sacrifice. The High priest, before he even got to this place, had offered, a go, had offered a sacrifice for his sins. Then he came in, and the people, the elders of the people and the priests would lay their hand on these goats and confess all of their sins over the, over the goats to cover their sins for that year. And by lot, they would choose one of the goats to be taken out into the wilderness to be let, let go. And it was called the scapegoat. It, took the, it carried the sins of the people away from the camp. So this is where the word scapegoat comes from. It's the goat that gets released. Oh, yeah, so uh, you know, released that carries the sin, sins off and then the other goat would have been slain 
Its blood was then taken and offered and taken, that blood was taken into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled upon the mercy seat. And the people would be forgiven of their sins for one more year until the next year. And, and they'd have to do it all over again. And, you know, you can almost picture, okay, my sins are covered, I'm good. I have no idea whether we, whether it was each year, but you know, one way or the other, you're still stuck. Right. You know, if it's for the previous year, then the then before the day is over, you've sinned, and you're no, you're kind of out, you're kind of worried again. And if you're a really bad sinner, you're, you know, you're worrying a lot earlier than if you think you're pretty good. But you know, all of this was the the problem. I think it was the last, the previous year it covered all, but it, you know, because they had to confess their sins over that goat, over that, over that animal. So it was probably the previous year. Uh, but still, the idea, no matter whether it was the next year or the previous year, you're still like, have I over-sinned? Have I, over, have I confessed everything? You know, and I'm sure it was for the previous year. Now you're in the day one, and you've sinned before you even get, get home from the, from the tabernacle, and it's like, oh, my goodness, am I, what's going to happen to me now? If I die now, what's going to happen? And the law was always there to remind them that they were sinners. You know, and the sad thing was that many of the leaders were so self-righteous that they thought they were perfect. You know, uh, I keep all the laws. You don't keep the laws. You're not even close to keeping the laws. And then Jesus comes around and says, oh, by the way, you might think you have kept that law, but you haven't even come close because God says, if you've looked at the woman with, the, with lust in your heart, you've sinned. If you've been angry with the brother without cause, you have committed murder in your heart. He took it to another level altogether because they were twisting it. And, you know, I've shared with people, nobody keeps the, the last one anyway. Thou shalt not covet. We all covet. We all want something that's not ours. And God put that one in there. Okay, you think you're keeping all the other nine? Let me throw this one in there. And there is no way we as human beings can keep the thou shalt not covet. You know, uh, now we might not act on our covetousness, <laughs> But again, because of the heart attitude, we are a sinner. And this is why we're told in Jeremiah that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? So even in the Old Testament, they were told that your heart attitude is what is sinful, not just your outward activity. And you know, this is the whole purpose of the law, to reveal to us that we are sinners. And we need the complete sacrifice, the final sacrifice that was going to cover our sins before the Father. Now, God accepted the, the year of atonement sacrifice because it was the foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Jesus. So when that blood would be brought into the mercy seat, God wasn't seeing the blood of a lamb being, you know, or, or a goat being brought into the mercy seat. He was seeing the day when his son's blood would be brought into the true mercy seat of his heaven and saying, it's going to happen. And this is the beauty of it, because God being outside of time, as soon as Jesus said, yes, Father, I will die, he was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And the sins of man were already going to be forgiven because Jesus was going to die. But because Jesus had said he was going to die and he was God, God knew that he would die. And we can't, we can't even begin to fathom that. But as soon as he said yes, it was done. The father says, you're God, you're going to keep your word. 
And, you know, all from that point on, what he saw had already happened because he was already, you know, outside of time. And we've got to understand, when God is omnipresent, it's, he is, if you study psycho, uh, sociology, the first thing they'll tell you, we can never know anything for sure because we are not everywhere at the same time in all of time. They go, you can't know anything for sure because if you look over here and then you go over here, something can come back over where you were, where you just looked. And so you can't be sure that when you've searched everywhere that they haven't moved while you were searching everywhere else. All right? Uh, that's their logic. And it makes some sense. God is the only one who can, by that logic, can know everything there is to know because he is everywhere at the same time. But he's also outside of time, so he's in all of time at the same time. So he is at the beginning and the end. He says, I am, present tense, the beginning and the end. So he, at the, at the time that he speaks, he is at the beginning of all things and at the end of all things, and he's outside of time to begin with. It's a mind-boggling thought. You know, so when he was with Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve had sinned, he already knew that, the son, that his son was going to die 4,000 years later, so he was able to forgive Adam and Eve their sin just by, just by showing them the idea of sacrificing an animal to, to symbolize the blood that was going to be shed 4,000 years later. But he already knew that, and as far as he was concerned, it was already shed. Because God was already at, at the new heaven and new earth. <laughs> they had come down from heaven. And this world was destroyed in his mind because he was already there. When God gives a prediction of what we call prophecy in the Bible, it's not even really a prophecy from his point of view. He says, it has already happened. I'm just telling you what I know is going to happen because as far as I'm concerned, it already has happened. That's our God. And for us in our limited perspective, it is hard for us to even picture all of this. But the people came together and they said, we have sacrificed, we're covered for another year. You know, our sins have been, our sins are covered and we will have another one in a year which will cover our sins for this year. Uh, I would have almost hated to live that way. <laughs> Not, you know, have I done too many sins to be forgiven, be, uh, you know, from the, you know, over this next sacrifice and I died that year? <laughs> It'd be a terrifying way to live. You know, and this is why it is so comforting to live at this point of, of time when Jesus has died and we know that he has brought eternal life. Don't have to worry about losing it because God gave it to me with it by grace and I, can't, I didn't do anything to earn it. I can't do anything to lose it. All I did was admit that I'm a sinner and accept the gift and then he gives me eternal life. And this is great news. All I have to do is hold on and say, God, thank you. I know that I've confessed my sins. I know that you've forgiven me. And I'm going to live in that forgiveness. And then we are overcomers. Because he says we're overcomers in 1 John. And so we, we look at all this. And it says, the Holy Spirit in verse 8 is signif with this signifying that the way of holiness was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was yet standing. It was not made known. It was not, not made, made visible. Because man could not understand. Even in our day and age where we have the, the physics and everything to understand multidimensional 
you know, realms and everything, we still have a hard time with the idea of God being outside of time and overriding, overarching time. You have to really be into mathematics and physics to even begin to comprehend what he's talking about. And these guys didn't understand any of that. All right? They barely understood time. And so he's saying, you weren't ready for it, so you, it hasn't been revealed. But there is, a, there is the greater sacrifice coming. There is the greater fulfillment, the perfect fulfillment that actually takes his blood not to the shadow of the tabernacle, but to the real tabernacle. Jesus took his blood to present to the Father in heaven at the mercy seat of heaven, not an not earthly copy of it. And because of that mercy seat now having the blood of Christ on it, God sees everything. His blood went on the mercy seat, and the mercy seat covers all the earthly laws and rules and all the other stuff. And he's now able to say, the law's covered. I now see you in a different way. So the only question when people stand before Christ now is, are you standing in the righteousness of Christ by accepting his sacrifice? Or are you standing before him in, in your own self-righteousness? And Isaiah tells us that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So if you're standing in your, in before God in your self-righteousness, you're standing at the courtroom of heaven in filthy rags. And if you know anything about even courts of America, you don't go to the court in dirty clothes and ragged clothes. You know, the first thing a lawyer is going to do, even if he pulls his people from the jail and they're in their, their orange clothes from the jail, jail and prison, the first thing they do is they get them in, they put them in a nice suit, if, you know, if it's a decent lawyer that's going to be in there and make them presentable so they don't look guilty just standing in front of somebody. That is what God does, what Jesus, our defense lawyer, does for us. He puts clothes on us of his righteousness so when we stand before the Father... The father says, what is this perfect person standing in front of me? And they're forgiven. This is the good news. Otherwise, they're standing guilty. And when people stand at the white throne judgment of God, they're going to be, everyone standing at the white throne is guilty. We will have been judged at the Bema seat as Christians. where Our works will be cast into the fire to see what we get rewarded for. And anything coming out of it is our reward. Anything that we did in our own strength burns up. And we lose that re or lose reward for it, and we only get the reward for what God did through us. And we'll go into heaven with our rewards. Now I don't know what value rewards have in heaven. I I know through my sinful thought process I want as many as possible, <laughs> but I don't know what it means when we're in a perfect body and a perfect mindset. What rewards in heaven are going to mean? But they're talked about all through the New Testament. They're talked about in the Old Testament. So I'd like to have a few rewards when I get to heaven. Just, just because. <laughs> what it means in a glorified body, I don't know. And he says in verse 9, which was the figure or the example in, for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. So as they, he says they brought gifts. And these, when the, we use the word gift, these are gifts of gratitude that would be presented to the sovereign. 
right? If you went to make a petition before, the, before any king, you did not make your petition empty-handed. You brought something to give to, the, give to the king. Now, if you were a farmer, you might not have a whole lot, but you brought something. You bought a chicken for a stew, dinner that night. You bought, you know, uh, bushels of grain. You brought something to present in gratitude and saying, this is, all, this is what I've got. I'm going to give you. And part of this, the offerings that people made were two parts. Gifts that were out of free will, just saying, God, I love you. Here's, here's your gift. And the sacrifice for whatever. And we've talked about this again. There's five different sacrifices in the Jewish system. And we're not going to talk about all of them tonight. Uh, but we as Gentiles just think of, oh, there was just this burnt offering. They threw everything on the fire and burnt it all up. Well, that was one of the five offerings. And it was the only one that wasn't a required offering. The burnt offering was one that showed that, God, I am totally dedicating myself. And instead of burning myself up, I'm going to burn this animal up. But I am the one, but am symbolically saying that animal is me and I'm giving myself completely to you. And that was the burnt offering. That's the one we all think about as Gentiles as being the, the offering that everybody made. There were other offerings that were made that ended up getting split up and parts went all over the place. For Some of them went to the priest, some of them went to, to be burnt. And, and the Thanksgiving offering, part of it went back to you. And you had to get it all eaten up within, uh, within 48 hours to 72 hours, depending on why you were offering it. So you went home and you basically had a great big party with, you know, you just, you just offered a, a bullock. You've got 300 pounds of meat out there that has to be eaten up before 72 hours have passed along or 48 hours. You just had a great big, big house party and invited all your friends to help you eat that, <laughs> eat that animal. And that was the Thanksgiving offering. And part of it was burnt. Part of it, about a third of it went to the priest. Part of it was burnt. And you got back about half of it yourself and had a great big feast at your own home. You know, you had a pit barbecue uh, <laughs> You know, going on and having everybody you know come and come and help you eat this this uh, animal up before before, and then you burned. You know, at the end of the time, you burnt up everything, because if any of it was left after that period, God did not accept the Thanksgiving offering. So you did everything you could to get rid of it, and that's just you know, we went through all these sacrifices before, but just helping because a lot of you weren't here back when we went through the Pentateuch. Uh, but there's lots of things that go on in here. But he said. It could not make him that did the service perfect pertaining to the conscience. They still felt guilty if they truly had any idea of their sin. This is where the difference is now that Jesus comes into our hearts and makes us a new creation, replaces our heart of stone with a heart of flesh, and actually can give us a new conscience. This is where when we get saved, we actually feel the sin being lifted off of us and we feel the freedom that God gives us. When the son, if we know that the son shall make you free, <laughs> you know, we know the son and he shall make us free. Not just free of the sin, but free of the guilt. Now, Satan comes along and then tries to make us feel guilty all over again, which is why we need to know the word of God that I am forgiven no matter how I feel. 
I am forgiven. Most of our guilt is because we don't understand the word of God to understand that we are forgiven and, and without guilt. Again, we... Huh? Well, the question would be at that point, if somebody really can never accept that they are without guilt, they have to then say, did I really confess my sins and accept Jesus Christ as my Savior and then do it? But again, the whole idea is feelings are not how we're saved. Feelings are not how we walk with God. Satan is real good about manipulating our feelings. He's real good at saying, well, let me just walk you in this thing. and You're going to feel real good as I walk you down the side path, not the straight path. I'm going to take you down the, the wide path and get you off of the path and onto something else. And we feel good while we're doing it. And Satan is good at lying to us. Well, you know what? You can just do this. Even if it's wrong, God will forgive you. You know, you're, you're, you're a Christian. You're his child. He'll forgive you. And then as soon as you do it, he goes back to you and go, you dirty, rotten, stinking sinner. How could you have done something like that? And he then tries to make you feel so guilty. And, you, and then what happens is people start saying, well, I am so awful and bad. I don't want to be in the Bible. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to be around other Christians because I am just so bad and so terrible you know, because Satan, they're listening to the lies of Satan rather than the truth of God. So could Satan, like, trick his mind saying, well, you're not saved, or, I mean, making you feel like you're not saved, because Satan's playing tricks with people. Mm -hmm. Again, do we know the word? Yeah. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. We are saved by grace. We are kept by grace. I didn't do anything to earn my salvation. I cannot do anything to not earn my salvation because I didn't do anything to earn it in the first place. And, you know, does, and as Paul said in Romans, does that mean I should just go out and sin because I got lots of grace? He says, God forbid. He goes, if you're truly saved, you're not going to want to sin because the Spirit is living in you and the one thing I have learned over the years is the closer I am to God, the less I want, the less I am able to sin because I think about sinning and the spirit, spirit convicts me. Now, that doesn't mean I don't go ahead and sin anyway sometimes, but it is a lot harder to sin. The longer you walk with God, the harder it is to sin because the Holy Spirit is in there saying, what are you, what are you even thinking about doing this thing for? You're already sinned by thinking about it, so Stop. And this is what I've said. If you can sin without any conviction whatsoever, then you have to say, God, do I really know you? Have I truly turned my life over to you? And at that point, just if you know what you do, do it, you know, do it again if you need to. But start looking at the scriptures and saying, God, I believe you. You know, we're told that Jesus died for our sins and all we have to do is believe on him and you shall be saved. It's really simple. Believe on him. He doesn't say believe and feel saved. He doesn't say believe and go, go to the clouds with your excitement. There are lots of people who just say the prayer of salvation and don't ever realize any emotional 
change. There are people that are fairly, you know, even keeled and not highly emotional. So they're just going to have to believe what God says. And, you know, and say, God says, you know, did you, did you confess that you were a sinner? Yep. Did you believe that you, that you deserve punishment? Yep. Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Yep. Then you are saved. <laughs> Knowing that you're saved and then you watch how God changes your life. And he will change. It's very subtle sometimes. You know, all of a sudden you look back and you go, I haven't had this sin bothering me for, for days, months, years. Uh, how many people have gotten saved and immediately lost their desire for their alcohol or their drugs or their smoking or whatever it might be that they had a problem with? And sometimes they don't realize it right off the bat. They get a couple days out and go, you know what? I haven't had a desire for a hit you know, in days. I haven't had a desire to grab a cigarette in days. Haven't had a desire for that drink in days. And they're going, God has done something. He's changed the conscience. He's changed the way they think. And it's God that does this. He makes us a new creation. He clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. He puts the Holy Spirit in us so that we can be changed. And then Jesus comes along and the Father comes along. We have the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwelling in us because Jesus is there. And we have all the power we need to be victorious and we find that we start making better decisions we find that we love the word of god we find that we love love the body of christ you know and all these things are indications if i can go without reading the word if i can go without being around god's people if i can go without you know praying if i can go without conviction i then have to do seriously look at my life and say did i truly turn my life over to god only you and god can know for sure did you truly do it? If you did it, then you're okay. But you need to be able to say, God, I know that I did. And it may be something that is not going to be of an emotional high. You know, the one thing I know is because God said it, I know that I know that I'm saved. I'm not the most emotional person in the world. I don't have lots of highs and lows. I'm fairly even keeled all the way, all the way through. So when I got saved, I didn't feel any great difference in my life. The next day when the people did things that normally would have made me mad and got into a fight and I got through the whole day without a fight, I knew that I was different. I knew that God had changed me because I, was, I made it through a day without a fight. I made it through a day without being angry at somebody. And it's like, God, you've done something. <laughs> All right. So what would it be for you? I don't know. Some people get really high emotionally and it's like, I've been burdened by this sin. They're, they're like this the Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. He's being bent over by this, the knowledge of his sin. He comes to the cross, it falls off. And, you know, a picture, and, the, and the picture in the book is him leaping and jumping because of how free he is of the burden of his sin. Some people are like that. Some people are just, all right, God, I'm going to have to believe what you said. Neither one is right or wrong. It's just how God deals with that individual. So learn to just say, God, I know, I'm going to accept your word. This is why it's important for us to know the word of God. You know, uh, and on this. And it says in verse 10, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. What is this meaning? You had a whole bunch of rules. <laughs> eat this, don't eat that. Do this, don't do that. And when we are trying to walk with God just 
following rules, it is, we're not going to do it. And the sad thing is how many people get saved and then they go into a church, it's all about rules. And then they get all twisted in their mindset because all of a sudden you find out I can't keep all these rules and then you're going, am I really saved because I can't keep all the rules. Sometimes churches have very informal rules. You know, you're just looked down on if you don't do the right, you know, you're not wearing the right clothes when you come to church. You don't, you're not speaking the right language. You're not speaking, you're not reading the right books. Well, what do you mean you came in? Your, your dress, you know, girls, your dress isn't, you know, three inches from your ankle. How could you be coming to church without, with a dress that short? Guys, why aren't you here with a, with a coat and a tie? You know, uh, gentlemen, your ear, your hair is touching your ears. How could you let your hair get so long? You know, and we laugh about this stuff, but this is the stuff that used to go on all the time in churches and still goes on in churches, maybe not to those, those particular things. You know, there was a time when if you went to the movies, you were on your way to hell because you dared to go to a movie. You, know, you played cards. You didn't play poker, but you, were, you played rummy that night. Oh, my goodness, you were headed to hell because you were, you were, you were playing cards. Rules become what man likes. Why? Because that gives us something to be able to look at. I, I was able to fill 10 out of, the, out of the 100 rules this day. I did a really good, good job because normally I only followed one. I am getting better. Or I followed all of them. Yippee! But I did not know God and I'm still not going to be, be, be accepted into the kingdom. We, we as human beings like something tangible. Just give me some rules and I'll keep them. Children of Israel at Mount Sinai, God saying, I'm ready to be your God. Don't come near us, just, just tell us what to do and we'll do it. So he gives them 613 rules to follow. And they can't even keep the 10 that we know of as the 10 commandments. And what was he trying to prove? I was ready to just accept you all by grace and you didn't want it. They told Moses, you go up and talk to God. You go up and find out what we're, whatever he tells you to do, we will do. We don't want to know him individually. We don't want to know him personally because he's kind of scary. As he's thundering and lightning up there on that mountain, he's kind of scary. Moses, you go talk to him and you just tell us what to do and we'll be sure to follow those rules. That is still the human condition to this day. You know, we go to church, just tell me what I need to do to be a good Christian and I'll do it. Well, let's see, walk by faith. That's too vague, I don't want to, I don't, you know, get, just tell me what to, walk by faith. Four times in the Bible it tells us to walk by faith. I think God means that we're to walk by faith. <laughs> you know, every time he does give rules, it is just to show us that we cannot keep the rules. And so we need to be able to say, I'm going to walk by faith with God. We have the power. Jesus, in Revelation 3.20, says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open the door and let me in, I will come in and sup with him. Now, that verse gets used as a salvation scripture a lot. But the context of that scripture is he's talking to the church. Church, will you let me in? <laughs> Christian, will you let Jesus in and have a dinner with him?
and spend time with him, getting to know him. Letting him direct you from the inside, saying just a whispered voice, this is the way to, go, to turn you in. You know, it is so much easier, we think, to say, just give me a whole bunch of rules, God. You know, I am, I am so disciplined. If you just give me a bunch of rules, I am the one that's going to keep them. Without really realizing that in the scriptures that every time there's rules, there is problems. Paul preached a gospel of grace everywhere he went. And after he left, the Judaizers came in. And their message was, that Paul guy, he gave you a really good message. You know, yes, you get, you get to heaven by Jesus Christ, but he didn't give you the whole message. After you accept him, you've got to follow these rules. <laughs> you know, you've got to do. And they started giving them the 613 laws of the Jews and saying, yeah, that grace thing's really good. That's, that's how you get there. But if you really, really want to be super Christian, follow the rules. And we tend to do that even today. Follow the rules. And God only gave the commandments to show people that they were a sinner. Because it was the blood that was going to get them into his presence. You know, it was the blood that brought forgiveness. It's the confession of sin and then putting it under the blood that brings that forgiveness. You know, over and over, we look at the heroes of the Bible. How weak are they? Moses killed a man before, you know, thinking he was trying to do, you know, deliver the people. Came off the mountain after having spent 40 days on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai with God. Comes down off the mountain, sees the people in an orgy. And what's the first thing he does? Breaks the Ten Commandments that God wrote on, on the mountain. In his anger at the people. And God forgave him of that one. You know, he comes in. Later on, and he's angry with the people frequently, but the next big one that hurt him the most was the second time that God provided water from the rock, he was to speak to the rock, and he's going, you guys are such awful sinners, Should I, shall I demand that this rock uh, give you water? And he smote the rock three times, and God gave him the water, but then told Moses, you're not going into the promised land. And you'll note that from that point on in Deuteronomy, Moses is always saying, I'm not going into the promised land. And he never said it the right way. He never said, I'm not going into the promised land because of what I did. He says, I'm not going into the promised land because of you. You people made me so angry that I did something bad, and it's all your fault. I, often, I fully believe that if he had ever confessed... <laughs> his sin, that God would have let him go into the promised land, but God knew that he would never confess his sin to go into the promised land. But he always blamed them. From that point on, it was always their fault. And it's a subtle change, and you have to kind of note, because everywhere he's going, I'm not going into the promised land because of you. All right? He never really acknowledged his sin. And we can have the same problem. If we do not confess our sin to God, we can stay out in the wilderness wandering around and never enter into the joy of our salvation in the promised land. The promised land was never heaven. It was the joy and peace that they were supposed to have. They wandered in the wilderness. Many Christians wander in the wilderness because they won't 
bow their knee and their heart to God and his forgiveness. So they wander around the wilderness with manna, which is sustaining, but if you've ever been any place where you've eaten the same food all the time, it gets old. I've been a restaurant manager. It didn't take too long. You know, I even worked at a steakhouse one time, and I never thought I'd get tired of steak. After about four months of having steak every day, you know, five, six days a week, I started looking at it and going, I don't want a steak. That, that, I love steak, but that just, I'm tired of steak. How many Christians wander around in the wilderness being fed the bare substance that they need to live from God spiritually, drinking water instead of being in the land of milk and honey with all the freedoms and the, and the blessings that God wants to give us. And we're there because it's our fault. We won't cross the Jordan River. We won't humble ourselves. We won't give in in humility. And we suffer and we just struggle because of our lack of trust in God. And this is so important. This is the completion. Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. The sin debt has been paid. I took the physical punishment and I died for your sins and my blood has been shed. And now all I have to do is take it before the Father and you all are forgiven of your sins and can live in victory. And then we tie the hands of God by saying, I'm not going over into the, I'm not crossing Jordan. I'm not going into the promised land. I'm going to stay out here in the, in the wilderness and wander around the rest of my life, dying, you know, struggling with thirst, struggling with hunger, barely living, not having any changes of clothes, but you know, at least they're not wearing out. And God's saying, just cross. Just give in and cross over into victory. Life with God in the Spirit is better than anything that we can ever think of, of accomplishing and just surrendering and entering into the promised land and living in victory. It is a wonderful place to be. I don't do it fully, <laughs> but it is a wonderful place to be where you just say, God, I am so happy that you're in charge. I am not in charge. I'm happy not being in charge. You've crucified my flesh. It's over there. It's over there buried in the, in the wilderness. I'm in here living by faith in, in you and living in victory in the, with, a, with all of the milk and honey and, and good things that there are and a good land that produces great crops, not wandering around in the wilderness. Too many Christians are out in the wilderness not surrendered not living in the victory of God. And even when you're in the promised land, it is not a perfect place. You know, when they went into the promised land, they had lots and lots of battles getting rid of the enemies that were there. But it was also a very different life that they were living. It wasn't one wandering around half, half you know, being sustained but not, not getting fat. Now they're in the wilderness and they're able to relax. They're able to build homes. They were able to say, all right, I have a place to stay until I get to heaven. That is for us. We can be turned over completely to God, living in a victorious life and watching him do th great things through us. Or we can wander around in the wilderness. And there are lots of churches that will help you wander around in the wilderness, give you a whole bunch of laws, say, well, you know, if you really want to be a good Christian, this is how you dress when you come to church. 
Make sure you get this type of Bible. It's got to be this particular brand and everything. And I'll jokingly say that, you know, if you have the right Bible, you have the one that I have. <laughs> but, you know, I'm joking when I say that because I understand everybody's going to read the one that they like. You know, but there are churches, if you don't have the right version of the Bible and the right manufacturer and the right, so that, you know, all right, everybody turn to page. <laughs> you know, don't have to tell you what scripture we're in. We're just going to all turn to the same page because we all have the same kind of Bible. All right. Got to have the same version, the same words, the same, the same notes. Everything has to be exactly the same. You all have to be dressed just right. You make sure that you don't do certain things, whatever that church's certain things are. And every church has different certain things that make you the, the perfect candidate for their church. And you just live under these rules. Living under rules, wandering the wilderness not entering into the freedom of Christ and his righteousness. We need to get to this place where we're going to be looking at this. And I didn't get all that far. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. Lord, help us to learn to walk by faith in who you are. Because when we walk with you in us, we will be more like you and we will act with the way you want and we will be made more and more perfect with and rules are not what we live by. We walk by faith. Help us to do that. Lord, if there's anybody that listens today on this and is still out in the wilderness, Lord, we ask that they will surrender themselves to you and humble themselves and live by faith and choose to live by faith. And those who don't know you at all, Lord, that they will come to you, admit they're a sinner, confess that they deserve punishment and that Jesus is the only way to, to, to the Father, you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona. 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.